Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Peringer. Well, tonight we want to continue our study in Daniel. We're going to look in Daniel 8 tonight. And it is going to entail reading the entire uh, chapter of Daniel 8. And, but it's because it's one whole. I mean, it is one vision. And we want to take it as a whole. Now, it's about certain political leaders. Some of us, you know, there, there are political leaders that we consider people who are worth following. I mean, if, if you can call a political leader a hero, you know, there might be heroes uh, of leadership from the past that we look to. Some who have changed the course of history for the good, we would think. You know, people you think of maybe like Lincoln or Churchill or, or something like that. But we also know that in history, there are leaders or there were leaders who exploited their people and they led by fear and they led by power and we would call them tyrants. There's that kind of leadership as well. You might think of Stalin, you might think of Hitler, you might think of Putin, people like that. Now it's obvious that we would rather have good leadership than bad leadership. We would rather be under the leadership of those who who changed the course of history for the better rather than the tyrants. But this is a fallen world, and so the possibility of there being tyrants in power, it happens all the time. It's just part of the world that we live in now. And there are the spiritual powers behind those powers that we have to contend with as well. What we're going to find as we continue through Daniel is that, you know, there's the world powers, the governments, these leaders, these empires, whatever you want to call them, but then there's the powers behind the powers. And so those uh, tyrants, as we would call them, you know, they're not alone. They have spiritual powers working behind them as well. Now we, our nation, whatever faults you might find with it, I mean, they, we have enjoyed freedom for however, 200 and however many years. I'm not good at math. Uh, you know, that since we've been a nation, we've enjoyed freedom. We've enjoyed a lot of good freedoms, and we've enjoyed a lot of rights and, and benefits. But when you look back at history, our nation is the exception rather than the rule. You know, a lot of times you look back in history to just a lot of tyrant, one tyrant after another. And we don't know how long we might enjoy the privileges we have. There may come a day where, yeah, you know, insults our, our leadership as, as you may right now. There may come a day when we're actually under a real tyrant. And what do we do then? What happens when we are troubled by tyrants? Well, Daniel and Israel had this issue. They were being troubled by tyrants because they were under the control of one empire after another. And those empires didn't always treat them nice, didn't always treat them fairly. So what do we learn when we are troubled by tyrants? In Daniel chapter 8, I'm going to read all 27 verses. And here, Daniel's given another vision of what's going to happen to the Israelite people. And it's a troubling vision because it's telling Daniel, well, you know, Israel is still going to be troubled by tyrants. 
So what do we do about that? How do we live? How do we remain faithful? And what does the vision mean? Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 through 27, it says that in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at Ulei Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram, and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, which would be Israel. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper." Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulei. And it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first or primary king. As for the horn that was broken, 
in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. There's a whole lot going on there. This vision comes about two years after the vision in chapter 7. Uh, king Belshazzar is still in power, so Babylon is still in power. Again, Daniel is not in chronological order per se. You have chapters 1 through 6 that are a little bit more narrative. They, are, they start with being taken in Babylonian captivity. It ends with the Medes and the Persians and Daniel serving them. And here we go, though, back to Babylon. And then now we start in chapter 7 with visions that go through chapter 12, through the rest of, of the book. Babylon is still in power. And there seemed to be no end in sight of those powers over Israel. Israel at this time was still in captivity. Israel was not in the glorious land, in the promised land. Well, Daniel, the two years prior, had this vision of four monstrous beasts representing empires under which Israel would be controlled. And yet, during the fourth beast, a different kingdom would come. God's kingdom would be set up, an eternal kingdom. Now those beasts, those empires would eventually die, but the kingdom set up by God would reign forever. Now Daniel has another vision. It's again related to world affairs. If you also remember back in chapter 2, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream also about world affairs. What is coming up for that part of the world? And he had the, the dream about the statue with the head of gold and the arms and chest of silver and the, the middle part of bronze and then the, the legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. World affairs are going on. What is, is Israel is in captivity. What's going to be happening in the world? What's going to happen to God's people? Well, each vision gives a little bit more information about what is going to be happening with God's people and what's going to be happening with the land. So the world affairs that this particular vision talks about is in the near future. It would be beyond Daniel's time, but it was in the near future. And it refers to what is going on with beasts number two and three in chapter seven. So a little bit more detail is given. The details that are given within this vision actually... Really, the, the details in this vision, the details in uh, chapter 11, they, they are just so historically accurate. They give so much detail that many liberal scholars have said it is impossible for this to have been written before the events. 
This had to have been written after the events because the information is just way too accurate. Everything's a little bit too spot on. But, you know, that, that just kind of confirms their leanings. But the fact that the details are so spot on confirms to us the sovereignty and omniscience of God. God knows every small detail that happens in human history. So it's not a big deal for God to give the details. He doesn't necessarily just give it straight to us. He does give it some things in visions. But it's just interesting that that the details of, of what happens here is just so accurate of world affairs at the time. So in this vision, Daniel is moved to another part of the Babylonian Empire. And uh, uh, Susa, would, 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 the citadel, would be, you know, he important for the Medo-Persian Empire. But it, anyway, he sees, he's at this canal, and he sees this ram, and this ram had two large horns. The horns on the ram are not symmetrical. One is bigger than the other. And what I kind of like about chapter 8, but is also kind of frustrating about the rest of Daniel, is that here, you know, he, he asks, this is part of apocalyptic literature, he asks an angel, a heavenly one, help me understand what in the world this is I just saw. And Gabriel is, is named, and, and he actually gives a straight answer. He actually says, okay, this is what this means, and this is what this means, and here it is. You don't have that necessarily with all the visions in Daniel, so you're left questioning a lot. That's why, you know, Scott, okay, who are the four beasts? I still think that they're Babylon, Medo-Persian Empire, Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. But at least we're given a lot of information here. And so we find that this ram with the two horns is the Medo-Persian Empire. It's the empire that would defeat Babylon and take over that part of the world. In fact, that was just a, a couple years away from happening. And scholars believe that the reason that one horn was larger than the other is because the Persian part of the empire was more influential than the Median part of the government. However, as history has demonstrated over and over again, not all governments will last forever. This ram is just there doing his thing, and then all of a sudden another animal comes. And, it, you know, just like in, in the chapter 7, the beasts just came out one right after the other. They were, one was succeeding after the other one. Well, in this vision, yeah, there, there's, here comes the next empire, and it's represented as a male goat, and this male goat attacks, and, and it moves so swiftly, it doesn't even touch the ground. This goat has this horn between its eyes, uh, and according to the ESV, it's conspicuous. I mean, it sticks out. I can't help but think of a, a unicorn, but a unicorn looks more like a horse than a goat. But, but maybe that kind of horn, I don't know. But it, it, that represents the primary king. Well, Gabriel gives, gives the, the, you know, kind of a straight answer here. That's the Greek empire. We might call it the Greco-Macedonian empire. And it has a primary king. Who's the primary king? The primary king was Alexander the Great. Alexander had a strategy of the way that he would defeat the Medo-Persian Empire, where he, his army actually was smaller than the Medo-Persians, but yet they moved so quickly the Medo-Persians couldn't keep up with them. And so he quickly defeated the Medes and the Persians and quickly set up his influence in the region. 
this was the, the reason that horn was so conspicuous, I guess the, the word the ESV says, is because he would have such an, an impact on that region, but in such a short amount of time. Because, because of what Alexander did, the way that he took over that part of the world so quickly, and he had such a quick influence, the Greeks, and sometimes it's called Hellenization, the Greeks influenced the culture of the entire empire. So through, and again, God, his sovereignty, it is through Alexander's actions that God was preparing the world for what was to come. Specifically, he was preparing the world for the gospel. Because God, through Alexander, gave a common language to that entire region. Greek. I know, I wish it would have been English, but it was Greek. And so Koine Greek, well, guess what the New Testament is written in? Koine Greek, so that the people would understand. The, the apostles and others, they would communicate the gospel through the Greek language that Alexander set up. Because the Greek language withstood the Greek Empire, it withstood the Roman Empire, it was. I mean, it was comparable to what English is today. I mean, English is kind of the language of commerce. English is the language of the world, and um, so was Greek at that time. But it does say that that very big, conspicuous horn, yeah, wouldn't last long. At the height of the Greco-Macedonian Empire, Alexander died. Some say of a fever, some say of other things, possibly malaria. But anyway, he died, and a great power struggle ensued. And the empire fell to four of his generals. You notice how it says that that one horn was destroyed and it split into four horns. The empire was partitioned into four different areas. Now, two of those areas will be important to Israel, and you get more information about them later, like in chapter 11. But the four generals were uh, Cassander, also known as Antipater, who gained control of Greece and Macedonia. Lysimachus ruled Thrace and part of Asia Minor. Seleucus Nicator governed Syria, Babylon, and the Middle East, and Ptolemy Soter controlled Egypt, and it was the Seleucids and the Ptolemies that would be very important later on. And so here, again, this is all about what influences God's people and what is going to happen to the land, Israel. Well, Greek, uh, the Greeks would take it over. You know, right now, Babylon was in charge. The Medes and Persians would be in charge. The Greeks would be in charge. You know, that's kind of bothersome to Daniel and, and the Israelites because that means they're not going to be independent again, at least not for quite some time. Well, it gets, you know, just when you think the, the vision couldn't get any worse, it then zooms in on this little horn that comes out, out of one of those horns, a ruler who would rise up out of one of those four areas, who would play a big part in the lives of the Jews, and, and not for the better. He was going to be a tyrant. It says that this horn cast down the host of heavens, the stars, which represents God's people. The little horn would heavily persecute the Jewish people. 
It says here that the little horn would exalt himself as high as the prince of the host. That means that this little horn would kind of sort of attempt to take God on. And he'd try and kind of take over God's place. He, he, I mean, you know, you would wonder who in the world would be dumb enough to try and take God on. Well, this guy would be. And he does a lot of evil things. It says that this little horn does something to stop the sacrifices in God's temple. He would do things to stop the observance of the Jewish religion. He would become great and mighty in his own eyes. He would boast great things. He would be arrogant. This little horn would be given power to desecrate the people of God and, and the temple of God for 2,300 days. 2,300 evenings and mornings is what it literally says. And, uh, you know, if it's talk, it, talking about the evening and, and morning and evening sacrifices, so 2,300 days, that's roughly six and a half years. That's a very specific number. That's a very specific number. That's unlike what, you know, what was said in chapter 7, talked about times, time, half a time. That's kind of a weird way of putting things, but 2,300 days is pretty specific. And we'll, we'll see in a little bit why it was so specific. But I mean, this vision is just overwhelming. And it didn't, wasn't a whole lot of good news. Was not a whole lot of good news. He needed some help to figure out what it all meant, and so God sent Gabriel to explain it to him. You know, first Daniel wondered why these things would happen. What? Why? Why does this stuff keep happening to Israel? Aren't we supposed to be God's people? Well, verses 12 and 23, Gabriel says, well, it's because of transgressions. It's speaking about the disobedience of God's people. Even after the Babylonian captivity, the Jews didn't learn their lesson. They still kept disobeying. They still kept rebelling against God. They still, still kept doing their own thing. Well, God would, again, punish them for their disobedience. Now here's something we've got to think about. Sometimes God allows tyrants to arise because his people are not following his word. So who knows why things are happening in our day and age. Maybe God allows bad leaders, tyrants to arise because God's people are not acting right. And so that's something the church needs to think about. Maybe we have become so watered down and compromised, we have no influence in this world anymore. And so it's a lot easier for the tyrants and the spiritual powers behind the tyrants to rise up. So that calls for a revival. So we just got to keep that in the back of our minds. Well, what did it mean for the Jews? Here's all this information, and Gabriel is pretty specific on a lot of different things, but, but he he doesn't give us a full answer about that little horn. Well, thankfully, historical hindsight can be 2020, And we're able to see that the little horn is a king that came out of the Seleucids who was known as Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Epiphanes means something, something to the effect of divine one. He thought he was divine. Not divine as in cool or, you know, I mean, literally, he thought he was divine. I mean, he literally thought he was, like, godlike. And, and, and he rose to power through bribery and flattery among the Seleucids. He had many notable conquests against different portions of the empire, especially against the, the Ptolemies. But beginning in about 170 B.C., 
Antiochus began heavily persecuting the Jews. He assassinated the high priest, who was known as Onias III, and during his tyranny, he executed thousands upon thousands of Jews. After he took over Jerusalem, he desecrated the Jewish temple. And he did it in a lot of different ways. I mean, one way is he stripped the temple of all its wealth. And this is, you know, the new temple, the one that Zerubbabel and the gang started, you know, building. So he stripped it of all its wealth, and then he stopped the Jews from sacrificing at the temple. The crowning act of blasphemy for him was that he erected some sort of memorial to Zeus, and then he would offer pig sacrifices to it, which maybe to us doesn't sound like a big deal, but you know what? For the Jews, the pig was like the dirtiest of the dirty animals, unclean animals. I mean, that was, the pig was about as unclean as you can, you can get. And for Antiochus to sacrifice a pig in the Jewish temple, there, was, there, there couldn't be much greater blasphemy than that. And yet God allowed that to happen because of their disobedience. And, and so Antiochus was so evil that many people think he was some sort of pre foreshadowing or precursor or however you want to put it, uh, of the Antichrist. He was just so evil. But what we find in history is that even though God allows these powers to be at work on this earth for now, and God sometimes allows wicked people to punish his own people because of their disobedience, God will judge the wicked for their atrocities that they commit. Antiochus would not be allowed to run wild forever. He would be judged. Eventually, Antiochus began to lose power. The Jews revolted under the leadership of the Maccabees. And eventually, the Jews regained control of Jerusalem and the temple. And then on December 14th, 164 B.C., uh, or somewhere around in the 164, 163 B.C. Uh, area, Judas Maccabeus cleansed and dedicated the temple. From wherever... Antiochus's, you know, tyranny started to the end of his tyranny was roughly 2,300 days, six and a half years. And so, you know, and during December when we do, when we celebrate Christmas and then we see like the, the Jews celebrating Hanukkah and we don't know what Hanukkah is all about, you know, is it about the dreidels, is it about, what, what's it about? Hanukkah is about the rededication of the temple by Judas Maccabeus. And actually the word Hanukkah means dedication. And they do that to commemorate that event. So Antiochus eventually was defeated. And, and he lost his power. But this vision is so horrifying. I mean, because the hardship that, and the heartache that is displayed there is overwhelming. Daniel became physically, emotionally, and spiritually sick. I mean, he became ill because of what he saw. And, and this vision, in a sense, was so much worse than the vision of the beast that you know, came a few years beforehand. I mean, just because of, it specifically talks about what would happen to the Jews during that time. And it was not pretty. And yet, there also came some hope in this vision. Because the tyrants will not last 
forever. And so there's some hope-filled lessons and some warnings that we can take from this. And so first, what we can take from this is that no matter how bleak things may seem on earth, and no matter how dark the times might seem here on earth, in the end, evil will not win. All evil tyrants and dictators and whatever other government names they want to put behind their names, Caesars, emperors, presidents, senators, representatives, they will not win. They will be judged. Now, God does allow evil to prosper for a time. He has his own reasons that are beyond anything we can imagine of why he allows that to happen, but he does allow evil to prosper for a time. And yes, God will use evil tyrants to punish his own people for their disobedience, but their evil will not go unanswered. They will be judged. The time of tyrants on earth is short. It might not seem short to us, but in the scheme of history, their time is short. And they not only will be judged in the physical realm, they will be judged in the eternal realm as well. All evil is going to eventually be defeated. We can take heart that the evil and tyrants of our day and age will be defeated. We'll meet their end. Putin is going to meet God one day. And it's not going to be pretty for him. And any other tyrant that there is, anyone who doesn't know Christ, that will happen. And so what that means for us is that for God's people, our heartache and our sorrow is also, for a short time, is temporary. We have to remember this earth is not our home. It's not our home. I mean, we like to think of it as our home. I mean, we got, we got a home, as in we got a house we live in. We got a home, as in a church home, I guess we could say. You know, we think we have a home, but our home is with Jesus. Wherever Jesus is, that's our home. And so, yes, God might have us on this earth for 80 years, but those 80 years on this earth is about yay big, in the scheme of eternity, we're going to have an eternity with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we have to put things in perspective. The tyrant's time on this earth is short. The sorrow and heartache that we, that we are affected by those tyrants is short. And we've got to hold on to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. You know, yes, there is darkness for a time. Joy comes in the morning. There will be joy. But a second lesson we need to be reminded of is that spiritual warfare is real. You know, because Antiochus may have been the earthly instrument, but there was a stronger, darker power behind him. And again, God may have allowed it to happen, but he did not cause it to happen. And just like that there are spiritual powers that were behind Antiochus, those same spiritual powers are behind the tyrants of our day. And we do not fight those tyrants necessarily in the physical realm because our weapons are not carnal. We fight these battles in the spiritual realm with spiritual weapons. And we are in a battle. What's happening to, if we could 
put it this way, what is happening to the soul of America is a battle. There is a battle for the soul of America. And so we fight it on our knees. We fight it through the word. We fight it through gospel, through evangelism. We fight it God's way. And so we can't be surprised to find ourselves in this battle. If we are standing for Christ and for Christ's kingdom, Satan and all his spiritual powers, they don't want Christ's kingdom moving in on their turf. And so they're going to do whatever they can to stop us. And we could just roll on our backs and submit, or we can fight. But we fight God's way with the weapons that he has put at our disposal. A third lesson, again, God may allow tyrants to rise for a time because the people of God choose to walk their own way instead of walking in the ways of the Lord. God's people get fat and happy and comfortable and decide they can do things their own way in their own time. They ignore God and they disobey God. God will give his people over to their desires sometimes. And then they reap the whirlwind. I mean, you see in the book of Judges, they did, the people did what was right in their own sight. God gave them over. God's people repented. God sent someone to deliver them. Rinse and repeat. Same thing over and over again. What happened to Israel can happen to the church as well. The church starts doing what is right in their own eyes. And according to Romans 1, God just gives them, gives you over. But God will not allow rule, uh, evil to rule forever. If God's people repent, if they pray, seek God's face, turn from their wicked ways, God will lift his people up again. And the question is, is our generation going to be the one that's desperate enough to seek God for that repentance and revival? Is that going to be us? But we can't end on, on that. We don't want to end on something kind of, kind of uh, depressing. So we have to talk about hope, because there's always hope, and we know that hope is found in, in Jesus Christ. And God didn't give Jesus so we could live a fearful, defeated life on earth. We can live in the power and authority of, of Christ, and we are part of his kingdom in the here and now. And, and uh, the, so there's always hope. For us there's hope for our revival but there's hope for you if you've never trusted in christ there's hope for you if you have never if you're thinking that oh yeah i'm going to go to heaven because i'm a nice guy i'm a nice <clears throat> excuse me gal <coughs> i'm gonna get to heaven because i go to church you go look jesus is the only way truth and life he's the one that gives hope and so if you've never believed in him believe in him today trust in, in him because uh, if you're not trusting in Jesus, you're, you're, you're missing out. But if you have trusted in Jesus, are you living out who you are in Christ? See, that's what a, a good portion of Paul's letters is all about who we are in Christ. Who we are as a child of Christ. The, the, the gifts and the, the authority and the power that we have in Christ. The authority that, you know, this is the same Christ that says, well, you know, the gates of hell will not withstand my church. Well, has the church been even going after the gates of hell? 
we have that authority we have that power and so let's get to it let's shine the light of christ wherever we go thanks for listening to the podcast of harvest baptist church for more information visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on facebook instagram or twitter You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at KidsQuest underscore HBC. Our student ministry is on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening and God bless.